Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the Future Impact Show. I'm your host Matthew Holding and before we begin, I just wanted to wish you all the best and hope you're staying safe and healthy during the COVID-19 crisis. Shout out to Muhammad Ali, introducing me to Dr. Adrian Percy, who's my mentor and a special guest today for the AgTech episode. Adrian joins us from the United States. He recently accepted a Chief Technology Officer role at UPL Limited. He is also a venture partner at Finister Ventures, a venture capital fund specializing in agricultural investments with offices in San Francisco, San Diego, and has a global presence in countries such as Israel, Australia, and New Zealand. And they recently closed a new 150 million US dollar ag tech fund, Bear Crop Sciences. So Adrian, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you, Matthew. Hi, everyone. Uh, pleasure to be uh, to be on this. Yeah, well, I'm... Uh, um, living here in the US, uh, based out of a place called North Carolina, which is a beautiful state, agricultural state. Um, I've got a background as, a, uh, um, as someone working in agriculture for, for now 20 years, which has been a, a fascinating uh, place to be. And probably right now is, is, is an even more interesting place to be than, than it's been in the past. Um, I'm a toxicologist by training. I trained in the UK, um, have been working in industry, and venture capital for the last uh, 20 years or so, always more or less in technology, research and development, and always in agriculture. Great, thank you for the introduction, Adrian. Would you like to further discuss your background with Bayer Crop Sciences and your new position at UPL? Yeah, so I, I, I tend to wear a few hats, which makes life uh, really interesting and fun. Um, you know, in the past, I was working with a, a large company called Bayer, which many, many people will have heard of. Um, you know, a pharmaceutical company that also makes agricultural products and animal health products. And uh, I was actually head of research and development for, for that organization for four years. And, you know, they had a, have an amazing R&D operation uh, in the agricultural side. You know, they're spending almost $2 billion a year on R&D. And, and I think there's about 6,000 people in that organization. So it's absolutely massive. And I don't think uh, many people always appreciate how much um, technology and science is going into actually moving agriculture forward. Um, but I left them a couple of years ago and uh, joined a VC group called Finisterre, who, uh, a fairly small VC group, but are based out of um, uh, the West Coast of the US. Um, their managing partners are based in Palo Alto and uh, San Diego, uh, but they both are uh, origins from uh, either New Zealand or Australia. Um, what they are doing is actually investing in um, venture capital opportunities across the agri-food chain, um, which again is, is perhaps something not many people know is, is an active part of the investment uh, sector, but that has certainly uh, been the case over the past four or five years. A lot of interest in, in moving uh, agriculture forward from the sense of increasing agricultural uh, output, um, increasing sustainability, helping agriculture to adapt to climate change, and all kinds of other, other, other aspects. Um, apart from that, my day job is I'm the Chief Technology Officer at a company called UPL, which is a, an agricultural product company uh, based out of um, London, here in North Carolina, and Mumbai in India. So, um, you know, very varied geographies, all of which have, you know, unique agriculture in themselves. Uh, I've been doing that for about six, uh, six months, and that's been a lot of fun, and we can certainly talk about what I'm doing there. Um, the, the other thing I'm doing is working uh, as a board member or as an advisor to a number of 
startups in the um, ag, ag tech sector. Um, you know, these are, are companies virtually based all over the world, um, you know, right from New Zealand, one of them, through to Canada, US, Belgium, uh, and Israel, which are all actually, believe it or not, centers of ag tech worldwide. So, um, again, something perhaps people aren't aware of, but, uh, you know, perhaps different from some of the other life science um, VC kind of hubs, um, you know, agricultural startups tend to exist where agriculture is is present which is in many countries around the world but particularly where um, agriculture is challenged so if you can imagine a country like israel with you know real challenges in terms of food security and and um, dealing with you know extreme climate um, you know you can imagine then perhaps why you know a lot of innovation has gone into um, you know developing technology which protects you know their food supply Thank you, Adrian. Absolutely. So for some of our audience members who don't know what ag tech is, can you give a definition and explain why it is important for our society? Sure. I mean, I'm not sure that there is a, uh, you know, a, a, a proper definition of ag tech. I can tell you what I think it is. I mean, basically, agriculture, you know, has gone through many changes um, in the 10,000 years or so that it's existed on this planet, you know, right from, you know, early development of of crops and domestication of animals, you know, through to mechanization 100 years ago, then through, you know, scientific advances in um, things like um, pesticides and, and, and new high quality uh, seeds. Um, but right now, agriculture is going through, I think, a, another generational change. And that's really linked to the digitization of agriculture, which is you know, one of the areas um, that digital has not really affected um, an industry as much as perhaps others, where it's become, you know, very much a way of life. Um, but it's not just about digitization, it's about um, also, you know, helping farmers with, with better supply chains, uh, distribution, different um, cropping um, um, approaches, such as indoor farming, which we can talk about, and, and also new, new seeds and and using new breeding technologies to produce those seeds with, with, with uh, high yields and with different types of qualities. So it actually encompasses a whole different range of, of, of different technologies and um, scientific um, um, paths forward to actually make agriculture more, more productive and more resilient. Yeah, I know that the term ag tech is very difficult to define and everyone has different viewpoints on it and when I was doing some work in London I had to find a definition for a deck which is quite a difficult task I was going to say you're asking me you should give the definition then but you're you, as you say it's um it is it is complex and I, and I don't think we have to be you know strict about it I think um you know anything that helps you know farmers be more productive and more resilient it should be you know kind of a, um should be should be captured here there's also food tech of course which you know is the other end of the food um, agri-food chain and, and that sometimes gets confused with 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 ag tech but you know with food food tech you have other elements such as you know even delivery services and, and getting actually products from the farm to the fork and everything that goes on in between uh, and then you have other maybe consumer driven trends in the types of foods that we want to eat or the types of brands that we want to interact with um, and so there's this whole food tech um, Kind of sector which is has emerged even more recently than the ag tech sector did uh, which only came into being in the kind of 2013-14s 
Absolutely. You see that with companies like Postmate in the USA or Deliveroo in the UK, which operate in the last mile of the food supply chain. So that brings me nicely onto the trends and what makes you excited as a VC or someone in the industry. You mentioned vertical farms and indoor farming, which includes aeroponics. So what do you see as the most important trends that we should be focusing on as a species? Yeah, so we have, um, as a species, had a lot of challenges ahead of us and, um, you know, population growth being being one of them and the need to feed, you know, several more billion people that will arrive on this planet in the next few decades and, and not just feed them, but also clothe them and provide them with energy. So that is, that is already a, an enormous challenge, but we have to do that, you know, in an environment that is changing continuously and, you know, climate change is real and is already and has already for the last you know, a few years been having quite a profound effect on, on agriculture. And so farmers need to be able to deal with, you know, rising temperatures, with, um, you know, differing climatic conditions, extreme weather events, and to protect their crops and provide us with food security. So, you know, there is a lot that needs to change in order to, um, you know, accomplish those two feats. So in terms of the different types of technologies, which I personally find exciting, I mean, first of all, as I mentioned, the whole concept of um, digital agriculture, precision agriculture, as we sometimes call it, is really fascinating. And a lot of the technologies which have embedded themselves in everyday life, um, you know, are also very relevant to, to farming. So, you know, take GPS technology, um, satellite technology, you know, the ability now for a farmer to plant his crop um, according to the field conditions, which are given by, you know, satellite imagery or by advanced weather analytics is really, really important. Um, the ability of a farmer to fertilize his crop in a, in, a, in a precise manner, not just doing it at the farm level as they used to and, and applying roughly the same amount of fertilizer, you know, over the fields, and not just to do it as a field level now, but actually to do it, you know, per square meter, um, enables that farmer to give the crop the right amount of fertilizer avoids him actually applying more than he needs to with the environmental impact that that has. So, you know, there is a lot of different uh, technologies out there to, to aid a farmer. Um, drone technology has become really prevalent on the farm and farmers are using that combined with advanced uh, modeling technologies to predict when disease you know, may arrive in the field. So if you're worried about a fungal infection or a bacterial infection, you can predict when it might arrive and, you know, do something to actually treat that field preventatively before the disease takes hold and you start to have an impact on your crop. So all of these technologies on the digital side, you know, are really making for a much more efficient farm system, which benefits, of course, the, the farmer, but also benefits, I think, all of us from you know, cheaper food, more available food, but also lowering any environmental impacts that agriculture could potentially have on the environment. So that's kind of one whole bucket, if you like. You mentioned indoor farming, which is, you know, a really trendy place to be right now. And a lot of excitement about, you know, growing food locally uh, in these large indoor farms, which can, you know, service, you know, a whole city in some cases. And, and certainly areas which we consider urban areas, which we consider food deserts where, you know, it's very hard in very, very large urban areas. For instance, here in the US, towns like Chicago, New York, there are whole neighborhoods that it's very hard to actually get access to fresh vegetables 
And of course, that has a big impact on, you know, nutrition, on obesity and other, you know, diabetes and other, other, other health um, impacts. And so, you know, what a lot of entrepreneurs are doing right now is building these indoor farms, sometimes on the back of a supermarket or on top of a supermarket or underneath a supermarket that can actually provide ultra fresh produce um, without the environmental impact of, you know, and the need to have drivers and, 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 and planes and, and other modes of transportation taking this, this stuff across the country, which is you know, massive in a, in a country as big as the United States. So that, that's one area, but this is a, quite a, at a young state right now. So the majority of foods coming out of these types of indoor farms are you know, leafy greens, so lettuce and, and, and kale and, um, and herbs and this type of thing. So, you know, it's not right at the point yet where we can provide, you know, strawberries or berries or tomatoes, green peppers, you know, um, and grow those economically, locally, but that, that hopefully will come. So that's, that's kind of another area which I think is, is really interesting. And then the third area I was going to mention is, is around breeding. So plant breeding. You know, plant breeding goes back for centuries and centuries and, uh, you know, various different ways of crossing plants to get a better plant you know, at the end of it, with better traits, with better um, yield potential, you know, has been has been what plant breeders have done for a long, long time. There are new technologies now, um, which have come out of the biotech world, which enable, um, you know, first to identify which genes are responsible for which traits in a plant's development, and then start to, you know, make very subtle changes in those genes um, to actually, you know, enable the plants to produce more or to pr produce different types of of, of quality traits in those foods. So it may be more sweetness in a tomato or a better color or a better shape or a better size. Um, and these, of course, are, are trying to cater to consumer trends uh, moving forward. So those are kind of the three areas I've mentioned as being exciting, but actually I could talk for hours because there is, there is an awful lot of um, technology that's being um, developed in this area. That's a great answer, Adrian. All very interesting points. I know from a conversation with the CEO um, that they're exploring certain crops and discussing the importance of high margins for hydroponics. They've had to be particularly selective about what they could grow. And you also mentioned genetics and breeding programs. I know we've crossed paths before by chance and via Tropic Biosciences. Did you have dinner with the CEO? I've met I've met some of the guys there. Yeah, really interesting company. Um, I mean, what I I see them trying to do is actually solve for some of the um, incredibly important um, you know diseases and issues that we have around you know tropical fruit production and um, you know crops like bananas have really important threats against them um, and uh, in terms of diseases um, that can you know actually wipe out the entire crop and so there's a lot of fear. Um, that um, you know, certain crops may disappear. I, I mean, I don't believe that's going to happen because I think we have very good scientists and, and people like at Tropic Biosciences who will, will solve for it. But that's one area that I, I was aware they were working on, but I think also I'm sure they're working on um, um, making sure that crops are more resilient to climate change, and particularly those kind of crops which are growing either side of the equator, which um, are particularly vulnerable. And so you look at crops like coffee, uh, cocoa, uh, and other crops which are, which are threatened by climate changes. And, and we need to start breeding, you know, more resilience into those crops and more adaptability, and then 
also, of course, look for other technologies which can help them survive in, in changing conditions. And yeah, and you see the world of biotech, um, such as technologies such as CRISPR, make its entrance into the agricultural space. Do you have any further comments to add regarding gene editing in the world of ag tech? Yes, I mean, gene editing has become um, really important. There's a number of companies working in that area, both big and small. I think one of the biggest question marks against gene editing is, is really public and regulatory acceptance. Um, you know, I think many people are familiar with the GM uh, debate, which was um, much around, you know, actually trans, um, transferring genes uh, from microbes into plants to make them resistant to insects, for instance. Uh, and that has been roundly um, uh, rejected by the public, particularly in Europe, not here in the United States, where, where it's a very, very common technology in many commodity crops. Gene editing is something very different, in my view. I mean, here you're looking at much more subtle changes. You're not looking at introducing uh, genes into a crop. You're looking at changing the existing genes. And most of those changes, or many of them, could occur you know, normally, normally under normal mutational uh, events. So I think there is a big difference here, but you know, initial uh, indications by the European Union at least are that they they put these kind of technologies in the same bucket. And so there's a real question mark whether these technologies will be accepted, you know, in 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 the European Union at least. I think here in the United States the technologies will be exploited just like GM has been exploited. I think there will be different types of products being you know derived you know, using these technologies, I think there is a lot of desire to have consumer-friendly traits, which, um, you know, I think will also help with the public acceptance. So, you know, making, as I said before, making fruit, you know, taste better or giving it a longer shelf life. These types of things, I think, will, will be the path forward and not as I think, you know, was done with GM, uh, where a lot of the um, traits were really farmer-facing. They were helping farmers deal with their crop more effectively and and that where that's where i think things fell down because i don't think the public ever really saw the benefit to them with those technologies that's very helpful again adrian thank you so backtracking a little bit so i wonder if you can share a favorite company or startup that you've worked with do you have one well it's the one that pays the bills at the time so upl is high on the list um but um, in terms of, um, if I could just mention a couple in terms of smaller companies, so which I think is, if you, if you don't mind bearing with me, I can kind of describe a little bit the varying, you know, the varying nature of ag tech. So I'm working with a company called Biolumic uh, down in New Zealand, and um, they are a company. What they are doing is UV treatments of of crops, and um, you know, UV lights, as we all know, can be dangerous if you have too much of it, but actually. A small amount of UV light can actually make a crop flourish very early in its in its lifetime. So, as a seed becomes a seedling, if you give it a, a burst of UV light at a, for a specific length of time, actually that crop becomes stronger and more resilient to um, drought and other other stresses that it may have. And so, what they're doing is actually working both indoors and outdoors. They're working with indoor farmers to actually, you know, put these UV LED light treatments, um, you know, into their crops and then also outside with, with seedlings. And, um, you know, they're, they're an exciting company, Series A, kind of very young, but uh, we're very, very excited about them. So that's kind of one agricultural technology, just using light, no chemistry, no biotech, nothing, nothing. 
Um, another example, company I'm working with in, um, in Belgium, in Ghent, called Biotalis. They're actually developing protein-based um, insecticides. So, you know, traditionally, insecticides that we've used in the home or we use on crops are, are chemistry, synthetic chemicals. You know, there's a lot of um, pushback on using synthetic chemicals nowadays for those kind of applications. And so they've developed basically a protein-based approach, which can uh, be very, very effective, um, leaves no chemical residue on the crop or in your home. And, um, you know, they're moving forward as well. So there's another kind of agricultural technology kind of play there. Um, and maybe the third and last one, a very local um, company called High Fidelity Genetics. So they are um, using, um, um, they're, they're a plant breeding company. So they, they're, they're, they're doing corn uh, breeding to try to build corn plants which are more tolerant to drought and what they're doing is actually using something they call the root tracker which is um, if you can imagine it's a it's a small device that actually is um, buried in the soil with the, the the plant is put in the middle of it and starts to grow and um, on this device they have a number of sensors which actually detect as the roots grow and so it's a very useful technology to actually ascertain whether a drought or a product that you're using might help the corn plant be more resilient to um, you know to the to, to the effects of, um, of drought for instance so you know this is a this is a really useful research technology but which can then be used to help breed better corn plants or develop you know products which can help with you know the effects of climate change and, and drought and other things and so they're just up the road from me here in North Carolina and uh, uh, they're the easiest one to get to, put it that way. <laughs> so they must be your favourite. Well, they are when I can, I can, I can get up there in ten minutes, as opposed to going to New Zealand, which takes a little bit longer from here. <laughs> Great. I think you mentioned Biolimic one time before in our previous phone call. So what do you see as problems that are yet to be solved, and where do you see the industry is heading? And I acknowledge that these are big questions. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question because. You know, we, we talk about needing to feed 10 billion people on this planet, which, it, which is a massive um, challenge. But in fact, you know, even in these troubled times that we have right now, actual food availability isn't too bad. And we are actually producing a lot of food and we are finding ways, you know, to produce more of it um, and, and to also do it under more difficult environmental conditions. Where we're still struggling is to get that food to the right place. And so, you know, the distribution and supply chain challenges that we have are really immense. And that could be, you know, just getting land, food to developing countries as an example. And if it's grown there or, or, or imported into those countries, having storage facilities where we don't lose it to, you know, disease or, 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 or rotting or whatever. So I think one of the big challenges that we have as a, as a, um, as a planet is, is, is all this wonderful food that our great farmers are producing, get it to the right place to the people that really need it most. And so I, I see, you know, in the future, um, a lot of efforts, first of all, being done to help farmers in developing countries, um, you know, who tend to be smallholder farmers who don't always have um, access to, you know, modern technology. And I think getting that technology to them in a way that is affordable for them and makes sense for them and opens up new markets for them and helps them kind of move up the, the, 
economic ladder will be really, really important. And I think also there will be big efforts, um, you know, around our distribution uh, chain of food. Here in the United States, um, we, you know, we're going through a, a tough time. There is a lack of meat uh, in supermarkets right now because a lot of meat packing plants are being closed down because of COVID crisis. And that really kind of shows that actually our food supply chain isn't as resilient perhaps as we thought it was even a few months ago. Uh, we're also seeing a lot of milk being, you know, thrown away because um, there's a lack of demand now, you know, because certain businesses have closed down. So, you know, there is an overabundance of, of, of a natural, you know, produced commodity as opposed to a lack of it, which is, you know, what we all worry about. So I think, you know, current events do put a little bit of a different spin on, uh, on our food security and, and distribution. And I think that will actually accelerate some of the research that will go into that area moving forward. Yes, and a question that just came into my mind is the rise of the super farmer. Do you think that with the increase in technology, there will be a disproportionate amount of consolidation because some farmers have the capital to afford better technology, become more profitable, purchase more land and outcompete other farmers? Yes, I know there is a lot of worry in the public around you know, that exact point and that farms have got too big and the food chain is, is being kind of um, condensed into a few players. And that means that we're all a little bit vulnerable to, um, you know, to, uh, you know, events that may affect them individually and they may have too much control over our food supply. I mean, I don't personally feel that, I, you know, knowing a lot of farmers and, um, and, and how they operate and what they, how they see the world, I, I don't see them as, as, as um, anything but actually some of our most important people on the planet, you know, producing food for us. Um, I will say that, you know, a lot of the consolidation at the farm level has occurred though. I mean, we see, you know, here in the United States, large farms. In places like Brazil, we're seeing enormous farms. I mean, the size of some European countries. Um, if you look at the commodity prices and what we are willing to pay for food though, um, you will understand that farmers have to be efficient in order to survive. I mean, we, we spend less of our, um, you know, earned income as a percentage on food than at any time in history. And if you look at the commodity prices of many of the basic crops, um, they're at a very, very low, um, you know, price right now. And so farmers to survive have to rely on the efficiencies of scale. And this is a lot of this, you know, has driven um, the consolidation of many farms across the US, but also in Europe and in, and in, in Latin America. And I, and I think we have to decide sometimes, you know, if we can't have it both ways, <laughs> you can't have ultra cheap food being produced in enormous quantities, um, always there available for us on the shelf, um, and never having to worry about it for the most part, about safety or anything else but then not allow farmers to make some money, you know, in actually producing that crop for us. And then, you know, if, if, if we were willing to pay a little bit more, then perhaps, you know, we could, we could also, you know, drive farming in a different direction. But so far, the, the general public and myself included, you know, I'm not wanting to pay more for, for food than, than, than I need to. So it is a, it is a very hard debate. Um, I would say that there are still a lot of smaller farmers out there who are, actually thriving because they're catering to a certain subset of, of society that are willing to pay those extra dollars or euros or pounds 
you know, and have something that's locally sourced, to have something that's organic, to have something that there is a, a story behind, if you like, uh, that they can relate to because there is an emotional attachment to food uh, for many people. So I, I think we can, we can't have it both ways in all senses, but but if for those people that want to have access to that kind of food, you know, I think that will be there for them because it is driven by, you know, consumer trends um, to to a large extent. But I think if you're looking at the more commodity commoditized type food that is in that is produced, you know, using conventional agriculture, it's hard for me to imagine how a farmer can be successful at growing those crops on a very small, you know, couple of acre farm. Uh, it just isn't economically viable anymore. I think you're right. There's, there's always this kind of risk reward and pros and cons you have to weigh up. In material science, for instance, you have both physical and chemical properties of materials and have to factor in cost optimization. Sometimes these properties are mutually exclusive. So we have some questions from our audience. Um, shout out to you, Juan Pablo Castaneda, he's a great friend of mine, he's from Colombia. His question is to do with carbon emissions. He says agriculture is one of the main sources of carbon emissions. What can be done from ag tech to tackle the problem? Yeah, I think this is a fantastic question because I think farmers want to be seen part of the solution, not part of a problem, right? And I think um, there is a lot of work going on in the area of soil health. You know, the ability to enhance the the capacity of our soil to absorb and retain carbon is 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 one area of big focus and and so we see a lot of initiatives you know i mentioned the root tracker and, and other other you know uh, approaches towards um, capturing carbon in the soil there are actually some um, ag tech companies out there which are have launched initiatives to actually um, reward farmers for following agricultural practices that increases um, soil carbon capture and have made that part of a business model and you know that's also of course being echoed by you know some governments around the world that are looking to encourage farmers to do that so you know i think um you know you know farmers in general um want to preserve the quality of their land i mean you know the the, the classical model is to pass you know the land off to your to your offspring and to hopefully pass the farm law on in a better you know, state than when you inherited it from your, you know, parents. And I think most farmers still, have, still, you know, treasure that and, and work towards that goal. And so if we can provide them with technology that makes sense for them to use, then I, I think they will adopt it. And, um, you know, so again, this is, this is a big area of work within the, um, with the agricultural uh, technology world of, of kind of this broad subject of soil health and improving it. Yeah, that's a great answer, Adrian. So we've had another question this time from a close friend of mine. This one's considering soil and its loss of nutrients. He asks, is there anyone trying to solve the issue of soil infertility? Because at its core, it is soil that a lot of root crops require, rather than commodities that can be grown in urban farming settings. Root crops also feature the use of excess fertilizers. And another issue is eutrophication. Yep. So what can be done to improve the fertility of soils nowadays? Does artificial soil exist? I wonder if you have any solutions that come to mind. Actually, I mean, again, it's a great question and, and very much related to the last one, you know, when I was talking about soil health. There are a large number of companies also working in this area, not just around carbon capture, but also around, you know, improved 
um, use of, of nutrient management and, and, and that's taking many, many different forms. So in the crop breeding world, there is a lot of emphasis on making crops um, bred so that they are much more efficient at using nutrients in the soil. So, you know, they obviously use fewer and they obviously, you know, those that are there, they can use more efficiently. So, you know, that's one way. Um, secondly, there is a lot of work going on around alternatives to synthetic, you know, fertilizers. So just like before, when I mentioned, you know, a protein um, alternative to synthetic pesticides, Similarly, in the fertilizer world, there is a lot of work going on to find alternatives. And those alternatives are quite varied. They vary from um, new ways of, of producing from other biological materials and kind of natural, if you like, fertilizers. So, you know, breaking down food waste and other things and, and being able to provide it to growers as an alternative to synthetic fertilizer. That's one area that a lot of companies are working on. Another area that a couple of companies are working on are actually using microbes um, to help capture either carbon or, or nitrogen uh, from the air and then convert it to a form that plants can use, uh, at least in nitrogen, uh, as a nutrient. So as an alternative to you know, putting some synthetic um, phosphorus or, or um, potassium or nitrogen into the farm, you know, to be able to use a microbe that can actually capture this, um, convert it, and then continually feed it to the plant. This is a much, much, you know, healthier way of um, of, of fertilizing plants than, than other ways. So, I mean, there are some really interesting stuff. I think the other thing that, that's a bit more simple, but, you know, again, very important, I mentioned at the start about the digital precision ag. You know, again, using soil mapping and satellite imagery to actually create a prescription for a fertilizer you know on the farm so that you do not use any more than you need to and where you're using it really has a, an effect can reduce you know the use of fertilizer on a, on a field by 30 percent quite easily so you know even with the current technologies there's going to be ways of using them which are much more environmentally friendly so i think there's a lot of different stuff that's going on uh, in that direction and you know it's great because I think this is typical of the kind of VC backed approaches you know seeing a problem it's it, it's not just can we make farmers grow help farmers grow more in this case it's can we protect the environment and at the same time support the grower which is you know a, a really noble you know I think thesis to go after and, and there's some great technology that I think can hopefully address that in the next few years. Absolutely. And it's the VCs and entrepreneurs' job to find those startups and solutions that will hopefully address those problems and make a dent in the universe. Yeah. Okay, so just coming to a close, do you have any books that you can recommend or sources of materials to the audience? Well, <laughs> I stopped reading books a long time ago, but I mean, what I do do is, you know, I'm scouring the internet all the time for, for new ideas, new scientific articles. I mean, you know, I'm a bit of a nerd, so I'm reading nature a lot and this type of thing, um, just for fun. Um, but, but, you know, there is, what's really exciting about doing that is, is continually seeing new ideas. There is, you know, a, con a, a flow through of ideas right now in that is directly re relevant to agriculture that's so exciting. You know, coming from the chemical world, coming from the engineering world, coming from the um, biotech world 
that, that all of these will over time feed their way into agriculture. And, um, you know, agriculture probably isn't the first thing on people's lips when they think about high tech. And that has been true to a degree, even though farmers have, a, you know, over time adopted lots of new technology. But we really need that tech to come through now to solve some of these global challenges. So I really feel that this is a kind of a golden age, if you like, of agriculture, where we're seeing these advances in science and technology and that the opportunity to integrate them into what we do and help farmers be more successful. And at the same time, you know, assure food security for all. And, and at the same time as that, trying to protect the environment the best way we can. Great. And a question that just came to mind, actually, is to do with barriers to entry. You have lots of farmers who want to adopt the technology as a startup, but the barriers are in terms of knowledge requirements and, you know, people don't like change, which I guess is the same for most of the world. So how would one go about introducing a technology and changing the ways of a farmer? And do you think cost would be a limiting factor? I mean, cost is certainly high on the list. I mean, farmers are, are to my kind of experience are very practical individuals and um, you know they are very open-minded and they they are more than happy to adapt new technology when it makes sense for the farm and for their operation but what we have to do is to present it to them in a way that is user-friendly because you know if you're a farmer you're basically a ceo of a, of a business and you are dealing with all kinds of decisions and and things to do every single day and never two days are never the same and so if you're trying to ask a grower to suddenly adopt a completely new technology that requires a lot of thought um, you know to implement it, it's going to be a hard sell and so as an example you know a lot of these digital tools that have been presented to farmers up until now have not been widely adopted in some cases or at least not been exploited to their full extent because they're just too complicated and a grower's got better things to do than, you know, than sit in front of a computer screen all day and trying to sort through his data and work out what it all means. So I think as these tools and, and services improve, there will be a big focus on user friendliness. And, you know, once we get to that point, um, I think the, the growers will, will adopt. You know, but what has classically happened with farmers, you know, is if you provide them with a new seed type, they will plant you know, maybe 10% of their farm with that seed type, test it out for a year. And then if it works, maybe go to 30% the next year, and then maybe 50 or 100 after that. So, you know, th those are kind of, because of the seasonality of farming, it can take a long time to adopt technology. But I think um, successful entrepreneurs will be the ones that, you know, really address that, that, that particular kind of hurdle and make it easy for farmers to make a decision and, and to adopt. And it goes back to that point you made earlier about digitization of industry. The last frontier people probably think about is ag tech. You know, people think high tech and don't usually match that to farming. They probably focus on consumer internet or artificial intelligence and biotech, for instance. Yeah. I mean, you know, farming in a way is ahead of the curve sometimes, you know, like driving, you know, you know, self-guiding tractors. You know, we've got those in the fields for years now. You know, it's only just starting to come onto the roads, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, you know, driverless cabs, you know, are available. We're not allowed to implement them because, you know, by, by health and safety standards, you need a farmer in the cab. But, but the, a lot of the technology is, is there. 
Um, and, um, you know, the use of drones probably in agriculture is one of the areas which has been the highest rate of adoption, actually. Um, if you look at in places like China, believe it or not, there are, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of acres now being um, monitored by drones. And, you know, if you think of the, you know, the, sc the scale I'm talking about is incredible, same in South America. So, you know, farming is, is moving forward. Of course, we don't always see that because we're not always on the farm, but, um, you know, as a consumer, but, but there are, there are some, some, some really neat advances. And again, you know, you mentioned, we mentioned um, indoor farms. And if you go into some of these places, ultra sterile, um, you know, high tech, enormous facilities, growing plants with, you know, turnarounds in weeks, you know, where you might see a, you know, a lettuce being grown in, maybe 30 days, 25 days, something like this. Within an hour of harvesting, it can be on a supermarket shelf. I mean, you know, these are the kind of, um, you know, advances that I think are really exciting for everybody. So what are your thoughts on the ag tech landscape in Israel? I recently came across an article that suggested that there was evidence of farming 23,000 years ago near the Sea of Galilee. I know they have a healthy startup ecosystem there and make a lot of investments. I know Finisterre has a presence over there. So with what's going on in East Africa and Yemen, with the swarms of locusts, decimation of crops, etc., I wonder what you think of the Middle East in the future and in terms of agriculture. And are they going to be pioneers of the future? Yeah, so, I mean, ag tech, as I said before, is a really global kind of phenomenon. I mean, here in the United States, there is a lot of startup activity on the West Coast, on the East Coast, in the Midwest, where a lot of the big you know, uh, the big commodity farms are. Um, Canada, work for some companies in Canada as well. Um, you know, Canada, the medicinal cannabis in Canada is, is, is very big right now in terms of investment. You know, so it's a crop. When it comes down to it, it is a crop cannabis. Um, you know, I mentioned Latin America as well. Many Brazilian farmers actually invest themselves in new technology um, that they want to apply to the farm because they're farming in these massive farms. Um, Australia, New Zealand as well. Um, again, you know, very different places, but Australia, as an example, dealing with, you know, perhaps the most profound effects of climate change and, and, and trying to adapt its agricultural system, you know, to be resilient to that. So there's all these different drivers of, of, of ag tech. I love Israel. Um, it's a fascinating country, as you may know, um, has been an ag tech hub for a number of years. Um, again, I think driven by the necessities either political necessities or, or climate necessities, soil necessities of, of being um, a country that's very difficult to farm in. And, you know, the, the standard and level of farming there is incredible. Things like irrigation technologies, how to, to best use water, um, you know, are, are very much, um, you know, based there. Um, Finisterre has a portfolio company called CropEx, for example, that. Um, Developed, has developed devices to um, make uh, water irrigation more efficient and effective. Um, and this is a typical type of, um, you know, company coming out of Israel. We've also got another company called Tyrannis, which is basically an AI-driven company with drone technology that is providing uh, information, decision-making tools for farmers um, along the lines that I described earlier, you know, detecting disease or insects in the field. So this is, you know, really, really important stuff. And then, you know, you mentioned, you know, locusts and 
another kind of biblical, literally biblical um, events in, in Africa. And again, you know, there is activity in, ag in, in agriculture in Africa that's driven, you know, locally, also by foundations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, but also companies like private companies like UPL do a lot of work in Africa um, to try to do things such as, you know, help protect crops against, um, you know, incredibly high um, um, disease pressure or insect pressure or help with um, uh, water retention in the soil and making sure that crops have, you know, sufficient water to, to grow properly. So, you know, it, this is a global business and, and um, it's not driven by technology coming from a small pocket of activity in the valley or anything like that. This is really driven by ideas coming from universities and farmers and small companies all over the world. And that's kind of what makes it neat as well. Absolutely. And I think that's what makes it an exciting space for lots of people. You know, you don't have to be in a certain geography to get started. And if you're doing consumer internet, you know, you're probably better off in Silicon Valley. For example, yeah, I mean, agriculture is a funny thing. I mean, I'm not talking about farmers now, but people like myself who came from the outside the industry and got involved in it, it kind of sucks you in because, you know, you, it, you're not quite sure what to expect when you enter into agriculture, but you realize that the people, first of all, are, are great people for the most part working in this industry. But, but the, the mission that we have is so fundamental and so basic and so essential. Not everyone appreciates it because you go into your local supermarket and for most of the time, everything you need is there. But when there is an event <laughs> that can compromise that, suddenly you realize that actually agriculture is, is a very, very important and essential industry. And having just gone through COVID, I mean, we were, you know, by many governments around the world, deemed an essential industry. So, you know, our lives haven't stopped, like some have had to, unfortunately, for, for COVID. We've, we've carried on, um, you know, doing our thing. Farmers carry on in the field. Um, you know, under sometimes some compromised positions and uh, situations, but by and large, the agricultural industry has just worked through this whole thing, um, you know, with the exception of some of the distribution issues, you know, that I described before. Brilliant. Thank you, Adrian. That draws me to a close, actually. So we thank you for your time and for being on the podcast. I know, I know you're quite busy. And thank you, Matthew. It's been a real pleasure. Loved your questions and happy to do this. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Adrian. So thanks for listening, everyone. Hopefully we'll be back with another episode soon. In the meantime, I hope you're safe. Feel free to contact me if you're interested in any of the future episodes or have any questions. God bless.